Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is Senior Technical Editor at ZDNet, Jason Perlow. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, John. Great to be here. I've been reading your stuff for years, and I've always enjoyed what you write. And what's cool about you is that you have this broad background in Linux, Windows, and Mac, Apple products, and it gives you a unique perspective. Let me give you a brief introduction for the listeners. You are a well-known technical journalist who's worked for both IBM and Microsoft. You are also a technologist with over two decades' experience in cloud computing, Internet of Things, mobility, security, open source, distributed systems, enterprise systems architecture, Microsoft technology, software as a service, desktop as a service. And today you are a senior technology editor at ZDNet and also an information security threat writer at Proofpoint, which we'll get into so that's pretty yeah. that's a big mouthful. And as I said before, I appreciate your perspective on things because having worked in enterprise and having sort of been standoffish from Apple, which we'll get to in the second half of the show, you have an interesting perspective to bring to bear. And so I want to explore that with you. But first, tell me about how you all got how you got started on this. What were you envisioning for yourself in high school and college? Oh gosh, well you know, uh, as a kid, you know, I, I always loved. Uh, you know, computers and technology, right? You know, my grandfather uh, is the guy that, that my maternal grandfather is kind of the guy that introduced me to Star Trek, you know, back in the early reruns in the in the early oh, 1970s. Yes. I used I always used to take me out to Yankee games. And then we came home over the weekend. I used to stay at his apartment over the weekend. And we used to watch Star Trek together. So, you know, that that was a show that, that was very formative on my early uh, personality, and then of course, you know, as you know, growing up, I the Star Wars and all sorts of things. But that sort of uh, gestated my interest in being a technologist. Although, you know, I was never really good at math or any of those type of things. You know, I was a kid with ADD and stuff, and and I it was hard for me to to really be interested in the, in the hard technical subjects as a child. Uh, I was more into the, the written things, languages, and things like that. And uh, I never really thought I could become a technologist as a child, but I, I, I loved, you know, computers and robots and, and things like that. Who did you and, most identify with, Spock or Kirk or McCoy? Oh, uh, I'm going to say either Spock or Scotty, in my opinion. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Cool. Yeah, for me, it was Mr. Spock. I went through that phase when I was in college, and uh, it kind of lit up my career, too. I'm right there with you. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, early on, uh, you know, my first exposure to computers really uh, was, uh, you know, at my bar mitzvah, uh, I was allowed to buy a computer, uh, you know, you know, when I was 13 years, 12, 13 years old. And uh, the, the first computer I got was actually an Apple II Plus, uh, you know, an 80 com card, uh, a CPM card, uh, a double disc two system. Um, the, uh, the color monitor, uh, you know, adapter, um, all that good stuff this is a completely decked out, uh, 64k, um, maybe it was a 48k at the first. And I think my, my Apple two C, uh, was a, was a 64k version. And I was a, an absolute fiend, you know, in the neighborhood with the kids, uh, you know, when it came to the, the playing with, with games and stuff. And, you know, I was, I loved the fact that, you know, you could write your own programs using um, AppleSoft and Integer Basic. Um, back for those of you who didn't have an Apple, an early Apple two series computer, there were actually two different programming languages for Basic 
back then. Um, and now, I Steve remember Wozniak that, wrote Integer Basic in the original computer, but uh, they had to contract with Microsoft, as I recall. And Bill Gates helped him with the floating point AppleSoft floating point Basic, right? That's right. And uh, so back back in the day, you know, in, in junior high school or elementary school, they had trash eighties. TRS-80 computers, which had a completely different type of, of basic. And I remember that, you know, they would give out homework assignments uh, for the computer lab there and want you to code stuff over there in, in the room. But they was always very, very busy trying to get computer time after school um, with the trash 80s. And uh, so I would always just take the assignment home and code it in, in integer basic or AppleSoft. And of course, back then, basic, even though basic was basic, basic was not completely basic when you moved it between systems. So I remember having to recode my homework, uh, print out and show it to my, to my, uh, my math professor or instructor back then. And, you know, we had to revalidate it on our trash. But after a while, I just showed him output on the Apple to show that it worked. And uh, I got credit, and I saw that was sort of my first systems integration job as, as a young adult was learning how to how to how to code from transfer code from Integer Basic and AppleSoft to TRS eighty Basic. That was that was a lot of fun. That sounds like that got you off to a great start. Very similar to my background. Yeah, that get, that, that can lock you in for a career when you get excited like that. Yeah, and my father was a was a dentist, and uh, he had one of the first dental practices with a with a computer, and he had something called the Hazel Team fifteen hundred, which was one of these blue screen. Uh, I don't think it was phosphorus, but it was it was a, it was a blue uh, colored uh, monochromatic screen, character mode screen. It was I had one of these giant hard drives that was like weighed fifty pounds, so it had the CPU in the hard drive. It was a giant thing. And I remember, you know, having him as a kid, trying to help him set up the office. And he had that for a few years. And then eventually, the dental software that the practice used were, were IBM PC-based. So this was probably 82, 83. Um, and that's how I kind of got into IBM and DOS and Microsoft stuff. Oh, that was my that next point. question. How did you get a gig at IBM? That's pretty cool. Well, that was kind of interesting. You know, um, you know, I... I uh, this is going probably around 2007 was when I joined IBM. So at that point, I had already spent a, quite a bit of time on Wall Street doing consulting. And I was at Unisys also for a few years before that. So I already, at that point, was in the integration game. Um, I was somebody who had a, 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 a Linux and a, 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 a VMware background, open source background at, at Unisys. I helped build the open source practice there. IBM was looking for somebody who had that background as well. So I joined IBM's uh, global technology service in 2007. And I did a lot of large scale systems integration work for that company uh, during my tenure there, which was for about five years. How did it feel working for IBM? Was it a great environment? Uh, you know, it was a childhood dream. I always, you know, wanted to work for IBM. Um, because, you know, to me, IBM meant computer, you know, but today it's, it's very different in terms of its perception in the, uh, I guess in the, in the Gen Y and, and, and millennial, uh, generation, right? I mean, I think they, they identified much differently with other technology companies, probably Apple, uh, Facebook, you know, Uber, you know, Google, some of these others that are out there, Tesla. But to me, the technology company to be in as a child, you know, would have been IBM. Um, you know, I, I, I thought at the time, you know, I, I, my exposure to Apple, you know, was in the, was in the Apple twos. And I had a very unusual perception or a different perception of Steve jobs. Um, 
you know, and the early Apple company in the nineties and the eighties. Um, I actually got to meet Steve jobs for the first time when I was in college. Um, I went to American university's undergraduate program. Um, and I was actually, uh, getting my degree in international relations. I originally, I actually eventually abandoned that degree and went in for economics, but American university was unusual because it was one of the, in Washington DC was one of the few, few schools that had a computer lab that was full of next cubes. Um, so they had, they had next lots and lots of nexts. I think that was money that was used by uh, the donation from Adnan Khashoggi, um, to build a laboratory there. Um, if you remember who Adnan Khashoggi was, he was part of, he was, that's what was where the whole Iran Contra thing, uh, back in the, back in the mid to late eighties. Um, but, uh, there was a certain amount of money that was donated to buying a computer center there. And American University had a couple of different computer centers. You know, we had, uh, you know, mainframe terminals, uh, computer room. We had, uh, an IBM PC room. Uh, actually, at that point it was PS2s. Um, and we had this computer lab full of necks. Now, back then, nobody knew what these things were. Uh, primarily, uh, Next used it as a, a demonstrator uh, kind of facility or, 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 or center for to show other educational institutions what could be done with the Next. At the time, Next was almost exclusively targeted towards higher education computer science kind of places. Yeah. Cause of the Unix back the BSD. They Unix. were, you know, a good $6,000 a machine. They were very, very expensive, very highly esoteric hardware. Um, but that was an uh, almost entirely empty computer center. Nobody wanted to use it because, you know, it had no bearing on what a lot of people were doing. They wanted to use word perfect and things. They could wanted to type up their papers, you know, and, and, and there was a couple of computer courses that used the macro assembler and stuff. So that also used the IBM PCs and then the other stuff as far as internet was, was using like the VT 100s and stuff like that. And in, in the, in the mainframe room. So this was kind of an unusual computing environment. And I read the, the manuals forward, the back for those things. And mm-hmm. I used them for whatever I wanted to. And um, because I was sort of the resident expert geek student at this thing, uh, next kind of used to use me to help educate salespeople and, um, and visiting people. So, so, you know, uh, jobs in the few times that he would come to visit, you know, would, would he'd see me there and he goes, yes, you tell this guy what, you, what, what this thing, what this thing does. And, and, you know, <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I think I, I think there was an opportunity at that point where I could have gone to work for Next if I wanted to, but you know I, I didn't want to I didn't want to drop out of school and 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 and, and do that. So um, and uh, I, I didn't encounter Net, you know Steve Jobs again until uh, the mid '90s when um, I was working at Canon, and Canon um, actually was one of the companies that contributed to the manufacturing of the Next Cube. Uh, they actually built a magneto optical drive uh, that oh, was I remember in that system. Yeah, they weren't they an and investor too? It was a read write. Uh, so they, the, it was an unusual product. So yeah, so it was an unusual situation because um, you know they built this hardware, these components for the next next cube, and they also built the laser printer engine that went into the Apple writer and also the the Dex laser printer. So at the time, you know, I was looking for uh, 
a way to help Bill Cannon's website. This was in 1995-ish or so, 94, 95, shortly after I got I first got married. And I saw that, you know, uh, Next had some tools uh, called web objects that would have been helpful for building dynamic websites. And I prototyped a little bit with it on the Next Cube. Um, and at the time, they also wrote the software for Windows NT. And, uh, and I approached uh, our management and said, yeah, you know, this software would be awesome. Uh, maybe we can get a site license. You know, we're partners with Next. Maybe they'll throw it at us. And uh, it turned out that Steve Jobs wanted a couple million dollars for it. Um, and that caused a bit of a, a kerfuffle uh, with the Japanese folks I was working with. Um, so that was interesting. Okay. Uh, so, I can't wait to hear how you ended up with Microsoft. We got to move on. Yeah. Microsoft. So after IBM, um, you know, I, uh, I was looking for kind of a, a change of pace in, um, Microsoft was looking to kind of boost their, uh, hosting and service provider practice of about 70 people. Um, and at the time, you know, they were just really introducing Azure. So I was kind of delving into that, uh, helping to enable Microsoft's partners, uh, using Microsoft's technologies. Um, that was kind of like one of these things where, you know, I was, I was in between work. Um, you know, I was looking to move to Florida, do some more remote work. I didn't want to do as much travel as I used to when I was at IBM, when I was working like, you know, 40 weeks a year, uh, you know, in different customer sites. I was, you know, I think it was like triple platinum on like two different airlines, three different airlines, um, which kind of burned me out. So, uh, the Microsoft situation was, was definitely more ideal from a working perspective. Uh, always wanted to go see what Microsoft was like. Um, and it was an interesting experience. Um, I what think what era was this? Was this the Steve Ballmer era? This was the Ballmer era. This was just, you know, I left just prior to, uh, actually just within the first six months of uh, Asat and Nadell taking over. So it was, it was a different Microsoft than it is now. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Satya and Nadell has done a great job, but that's outside the scope of this. I see you want to get into it a little bit, but uh, my perception is that Steve Ballmer was not as good a technical leader as Satya Nadella, and it hurt Microsoft. No, he, uh, I mean, I love Steve that bomber. Um, he was not a technologist. He was a sales guy. Um, and you need sales guys for companies like that, to be perfectly honest. Um, but you know, I, I had met, I had known Steve Bomber since, you know, the er very early nineties. I put together some of the earliest windows NT users groups in New York city. Mm -hmm. And he used to attend our meetings when he was in town. He was a great guy very down to earth kind of a guy. I think he's gotten kind of a bad rap, but he was, he was CEO for a very long time at Microsoft. Oh, nice. And I think, and you know, I think at some point as an executive, you know, you have to let the new blood come in and infuse some life into it. Um, I think it, it's possible to, to, to get tired of, of doing certain kinds of roles. So yeah. I, I think as, as what, what Steve is doing now as an independent investor and, and, you know, and some of the things that he's doing with his own projects, I think he, he's more suited than I think he probably likes it better to be perfectly honest. All right, cool. Well, it's time to take a break. Folks, we are going to take a 60 second break here. I'm chatting with uh, ZDNet technical senior technical editor, Jason Perlow. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. 
featured our native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. Thank you. I'm chatting with Senior Technical Editor at ZDNet, Jason Perlow. So just before the show, you told me that you went from a somewhat ambivalent, even hostile reaction to Apple and its community um, because of your career in IBM and Microsoft and your Linux experience until about five years ago where everything changed. I want to hear that story. Yeah. So, you know, I think some of this started with, with, with iPhone, right. And, um, you know, I didn't have the first iPhone. Uh, I was, you know, a hardcore Blackberry user. Uh, I never was really into Android. Oh, my condolences. <laughs> I loved it though. It was, it was, it, you know, the original Blackberry was, it was, it was, it was an excellent, you know, single tasking sort of, you know, messaging device. It worked very reliably. And then towards the end of, you know, RIM as a company, well, I mean, they still technically exist, but the, toward the end of the, of the classic back BlackBerry, they weren't as good. They were doing too many things with it. Um, the, but the, the iPhone five is kind of like where I jumped into this thing. Um, and I really liked it. And I'm like, wow, maybe this, Apple stuff isn't so bad. I don't see myself becoming a Mac user because I use Linux and I use Windows for, you know, for all my professional stuff and none of my clients and customers use Macs for anything. So I don't think I'm ever going to become a Mac user. Well, um, to make the story short, you know, I eventually decided, well, maybe, you know, well, look at these, this, this Mac mini thing is kind of inexpensive. Um, maybe I'll pick one of these things up. So I eventually invented picking one of those things up. Um, I also in 2010 was the first when when the iPad first came out. I thought it was a really cool thing. Of course, being a Star Trek guy, I'm like, this is exactly like the pad in Star Trek. Oh yeah, I have to have one of these things. <laughs> so I bought the very first iPad, and I bought every single model of iPad ever since. I've, I've bought and sold a brand new iPad every single year. Um, I actually kind of wish that iPad was on the the same upgrade program as as iPhone. Because I would, because then I would do one of those things every year without having to worry about selling it and, re- you know, and trading it in all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, the so that got me sort of down the road of, of using more and more Apple products. Um, I, I would say that I've been antagonistic mostly to the the end users who you know were sort of like oh, we hate Microsoft, blah blah blah, you know. Um, and I, I don't think that that is unfounded, especially you know understanding it from the also from the open source of Linux community. There's been there's been a very tempestuous relationship there in the past that I think is no longer applicable. Um, you know, and I think there was always among Mac users, uh, a feeling of, uh, I wouldn't call it an inferiority complex. I would call it a, a almost a, um, cause I came out of the, the Linux and, and also the OS two community before this. I know what it's like to be the less appreciated operating system or at least less appreciated platform. 
Um, and, you know, I always saw Mac users as this niche sort of thing, you know, content creators, people using Photoshop and stuff. And yeah, I, I used to see them in other offices and back rooms and stuff doing, putting stuff together, but not sort of in the front office sort of, you know, productivity, you know, main line of business sort of stuff. Right. So I wasn't exposed to it uh, as much. Um, I, I, it was more along the lines of, of, of having, you know, in, in social circles when someone says, oh, yeah, I'm a Mac user. And then I, and they would, someone asked what I would do for them. Oh, well, I do, you know, Microsoft and Linux stuff. And I would always get like a, you know, a, a, a mean looking face or something. And, and it usually would be a loggerheads kind of a conversation of like, well, I always be a Mac user. I hate Microsoft, blah, blah. And of course, you have to get into one of those. Well, there's always been that, that tension between Microsoft and IBM on the business side, you know, massive servers. And business productivity, and 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 email, and search, checking all those business boxes, and the Apple side, where Apple's has been always been on kind of like the fence with uh, the enterprise. You know, they don't have the XServe anymore. They got out of the supercomputing business. They're not really into networking. iCloud is probably pales in comparison to Azure, from what I've read. Oh yeah, and, and oh yeah, they're, just, they're they're not even the same. So you know, there's kind of like that happy, so lucky consumer edge to Apple that is easy to denigrate when you're a highbrow commercial enterprise server as your kind of person. I can, I can understand that. Yeah. But I, I kind of, you know, my, my, I always had sort of this, this sort of semi standoffish view of, of the company. I, I never really liked their ultra secrecy. Um, I never really, I never really had an appreciation for Steve Jobs' sales flair at, 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 at different launch events for different products. I thought there was there's a lot of there was a lot of hype charlatanism about that. Um, I had a finer appreciation for him towards his, his, his final years of life than I did during the course of my career. I, I now kind of understand why he did the certain things he did, why he directed things he did. Um, it, yeah, for a while there, it was all about saving the company, and uh, that drove everything. Yeah, I, I, under, I fully understand that now. Um, the, the, my, my experience and attitude towards the company has changed a great deal from a very personal perspective because um, I started using an Apple Watch, an Apple Watch Series 2, actually one I bought used in um, like, I don't know, January of 2018 because I wanted to see what the hell all this this, this, this wearable stuff was, I thought I needed a fitness tracker because all my friends were using them and stuff. And I'm like, well, the Apple watch seems to be the best one, but so I'll buy this huge one and see what happens. And then I got this email from Apple saying, why don't you join our, our health study? And I'm like, Oh, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll do that. And sometime in May of that year, uh, or maybe it was April. Um, I get an email, I get a, a notification from my, my iPhone that says, we detected an irregular heartbeat. Um, we think mm-hmm. something weird is going on. You should talk to one of our doctors on, you know, video chat. And all right, so I pick up the application. I hit the video chat, which looks exactly like FaceTime, although it's not actually FaceTime. It was something they licensed from a, a health company that does this kind of stuff. And I spoke to the, the electrophysiologist or the, or the cardiologist on, at Stanford that was running the study that they randomly connected to, to me. And he said, uh, yeah, we found this thing. We want to send this heart monitor to you. Um, so we can get some better data collection over a course of 10 days. They sent it to me. I strapped, I, you know, I, I, I adhered the thing to my chest when I got it and I sent it back to them. And then 
I had another follow up call with, with a doctor there. And they said, yeah, you got 28% AFib burden. You've got atrial fibrillation. You really do need to see an interventional cardiologist, an electrophysiologist. So push comes to shove. Um, I, uh, I did that. And, um, they found, you know, they, they, ver- they validated the condition. They did some imaging on me. And I eventually had a corrective procedure done called a, uh, an ablation where they, they do a full, like, 3D heart image, just like in Star Trek, using, using CT technology. And they do a 3D scan of your heart. And then they do this procedure where they send these uh, catheters up your veins. You know, you're, 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 not, you're conscious when they do this. Um, so it's minimally invasive and they don't cut into you or anything like that. Um, and they go up there, your veins into your heart chambers and they zap the bad, uh, electrical connections in your heart to allow the good electrical connections to take over and put you back into a positive, a, a normal heart rhythm. So now I wear an Apple watch series four with the EKG. I always check my EKG every day, um, to validate that I'm, that I'm good, that things are going good. Haven't had an event since the procedure, but I basically owe my life to the Apple Watch because it detected this condition um, early on in the heart study. They even, you know, and uh, you know, now I, I, I'm an Apple Watch customer for life. <laughs> what a story! What a story! Yeah, it's a crazy story. And now I tell everybody to get an Apple Watch, um, especially you know as you start approaching my age, which is fifty, um, and. Um, you know, I, I became a full-time Macintosh user uh, in March of this year when I joined my new firm. When they entered, when they when they issued me a, a brand new MacBook Pro 2018, um, so I don't even use Windows anymore um, because um, everybody I know uses Macs in my company. Although I do use a lot of Microsoft products. Um, I use 365. I use Office. I use, you know, all sorts of, on both um, iOS, um, iPad OS, and um, and the Mac. So, and I also use, you know, all, all sorts of other things, you know, other things that cloud services that that Microsoft has on Apple platforms. So, um, yeah, you could say I'm kind of a hybrid user now, but I'm a full time Mac user at this point. Well, I'm sure I'm not the first, but welcome to the community. No, thank you. Well, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to get to a, another a really encompassing subject. Uh, may, may take us hours, to, but we only have a few minutes. You just wrote a fascinating, wonderful article at ZDNet, Why Apple and Microsoft Belong Together Like Burger and Fries. And you kind of lay yes. out your transition and you lay out the strengths of Microsoft and and why these two companies should be working more closely together. Tell me about that. It's a wonderful article. So, you know, I no longer think that Microsoft and Apple are, are really competitors anymore. I mean, yes, Microsoft has laptops that they sell, you know, the Surface. They still make Windows um, on the desktop. But to be perfectly frank, there isn't a lot of overlap between Microsoft and Apple anymore. Um, if anything, they're highly complementary in what they do. Apple is a consumer electronics company. They make hardware. They make mobile operating systems. Um, Microsoft makes application software for all of Apple's platforms. Um, they also provide cloud services for all of Apple's platforms um, as you know, as third party if you want to go out in the street and buy them. But Apple 
you know, it has various different relationships with its developer partners. I don't think that Microsoft necessarily has the quote unquote most favored nation status that it should have with Apple um, as a highly trusted partner. Now, I understand that, you know, Apple doesn't necessarily want to give low level API privilege access to Microsoft um, or any developer for that matter. But I think that given the the history of the two companies of, of them working, they have worked together in the past. I think Microsoft, if you, if you rank them in terms of trustworthiness next to Apple's own trustworthiness with this customer, I think they're right up there with, with in terms of how they handle data um, and their customer relationships. Um, they work with some of the largest companies and governments in the world with, with, with data that has to be uh, taken care of in a highly trustworthy manner. Um, their cloud supports machine learning and a lot of technologies that I think would be very beneficial um, to Apple's products, especially when you start talking about Siri and intelligent agents and, and health monitoring with the Apple Watch. There's a lot of stuff there that would be highly beneficial if the two companies agreed to work with each other on a much tighter basis. Um, I don't think that's something that Apple should do for every single company in the world, but for certain companies like the Microsofts of the world, uh, yes, I think that that it would be a good idea. If Apple saw itself as an enterprise company and it tries to do that, but it does it in odd ways. It does it with its uh, handling of the iPhone for business and mobility. Uh, as I said earlier, they don't sell the XServe anymore. They're not really into networking and storage services. They're more into the enterprise side of mobility and the phone and iPads and and their partnership with IBM uh, on, on iPad usage in business. Uh, does Apple really need to get more and more into the network storage business as an enterprise company? Or is what they're doing with iCloud sufficient for their customers? So I, I think, you know, um, only their customers know what they need. And I've, I've seen that, you know, Apple's customers jury rig all sorts of things in order to make Macs fit better into their environments. I've seen what my own company does. I've seen what, uh, you know, partner companies that I've worked with in the past have done. I, I think that if, if, if that Apple needs a partner that really understands the space extremely well, um, that can help them integrate um, their platforms better. Um, I don't think this is necessarily Apple itself needs to get into the business of creating storage systems. I don't think Apple needs to build a enterprise cloud, but I believe that their partners should be providing uh, application services and things like that, that, that better enable Macs to participate on the cloud uh, and to developers to do things um, on the cloud. Um, you take a look at, you know, companies like, you know, Mac stadium, it's a cool company. They put Macs in the cloud so developers can connect remotely without actually using Macs or, or they can do, compilation and other sorts of advanced processing that they can't do on a desktop. Let's say if you're a small development shop, you need access to much more resources than you actually have. Um, I think that that's the sort of thing that could be done in an Azure, right? Um, on a more formalized basis. Um, and, and I think you need a large company like a Microsoft to actually pull that kind of thing off um, properly. That's an intriguing idea. I pulled out a quote from the end of your article that I thought was really cool. As industry veterans, talking about my Apple and Microsoft, both are being challenged by hungry and less trustworthy newer kids on the block 
Google, Amazon, and Facebook, and others, other up-and-comers seeking to displace them. And I think that's a good observation because I've noticed, that, as you said, that Microsoft has this extra special evidence on, on security and the privacy of its customers. And the two companies have a very similar mentality, and it's time to get over that PC war kind of approach and find out where they can work together. So I think it's an amazing article and a good suggestion. And uh, thanks for writing it. Oh, thank you. Well, I don't think we have any more time left. We're going to have to close the show. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we uh, finish up? No. Uh, you know, if you guys want to talk to me, I'm always up for, for suggestions and feedback. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at jperlo. And um, I'm always there, uh, you know, to interact with my readers. Cool. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show with Jason Perlow, Senior Technical Editor at ZDNet. And you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.